When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody, Brandon Harvey here and welcome to year two of Sounds Good. I am so thrilled about this. I just wanted to take a moment really quick before the show starts to say that because it's year two, we are mixing some things up a little bit. We're switching up the music, we're changing the format, but at the core of the show, we're always going to have hopeful, inspiring conversations with incredible people making a difference in the world. Sometimes we talk about mental health, social justice, big shifts in thinking or living, and how to use your influence for good, whether it's big or small. This is year two of the show, and I am so excited about it. And over the course of the last few weeks, as we've been preparing for this new year of the show, I've been thinking a lot about year one and what my goals were, what my expectations were, um, and why I really even started this in the first place. And I wanted to kind of let you in on a little secret, something funny. Um, Originally, I was going to call the show The Happiest People on the Internet Awards, which is, of course, just an absurd name for a podcast. First of all, it's not an award show, so that's a weird thing, but it's really limiting. And I got talked out of that. We changed the name of the show to Sounds Good, which is fantastic. But in my mind, I still kind of had this mentality of this show should be about the happiest people on the internet. Now, why the happiest people on the internet? For me, at the time that I started the podcast, happiness was like the best value that you could have. Like it's the best characteristic anybody could live with. And I wanted to celebrate people who had those characteristics. And over the course of the first year of making the podcast, I was having conversations with these people who were outwardly really, really happy people. And I realized that It's not like they were just like that from birth to who they are today. There was something that happened in all of these people's lives that made them like that, that made them more hope-filled, more optimistic, more intentional, more willing to make a difference in the world. And usually those things that happened were not happy things. Like for so many of these people, there was a pivot that, that they did not intentionally make. I think about Ruthie Lindsay's car accident that changed her life forever, or the fact that Bonnie Kate was shot in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Like these are things that are that are terrifying, awful things. And these moments they don't define Ruthie and Bonnie Kate and, and so many other people, but they did change the trajectory of their lives, and they ended up using that for good. You know, it could have made them bitter, it could have made them resentful but it filled them with more hope and optimism and joy. And that's why I wanted to have them on the podcast, but I just didn't know where that was coming from at the time. And sometimes it's not easy to have these conversations, these conversations about these heavier moments, because naturally I just want to have the happy conversations. I want to have the happiest people on the internet awards, but I've learned to be more comfortable and to appreciate these darker moments. It actually reminds me of this quote from, Another former podcast guest, the artist Sleeping at Last, where he says, 
Darkness is what makes the light truly count. And so I've been thinking about that a lot as we go into year two. And I think about how I want to dive into year two of the show, being more okay, experiencing the darkness, facing the darkness head on, because I know that the beauty that comes from there is going to be far more powerful, far more brilliant than if I wasn't to face that darkness. In many ways, this realization has just given me a whole lot more energy for year two. I'm so excited to dive into having so many more meaningful, insightful, hopeful conversations with incredible people. There's nobody I'd rather have on the show to start off year two than Scott Harrison. Now, Scott is the founder and CEO of Charity Water. I've been a fan of him for years. I've been a fan of Charity Water for years, and his work is just incredible. What he's done with Charity Water, I think, really changed the way that I saw the world. It made me believe that the actions that I take can actually have an impact in the world. Charity Water's goal is to provide clean water to every single person in the world. And right now, there's a lot of people who don't have access to clean and safe drinking water. But the crazy thing is, when you donate to Charity Water, you actually see the impact that your water has. Like, you get to know the people in the communities that you're impacting. You get to see photos of the well. Like, you can look up the spot on Google Maps. It's really, really cool. But everything Scott's done has just been, it's more like he started a startup than a nonprofit because it's just so innovative, sleek, cool. I love it. But Scott was not born as like a charity founder. Like that's not that's not how he came out of the womb. Uh, what happened is he, he had a lot of crazy life circumstances that led him to this moment. And we get to have a lot of that conversation in this episode where we talk about those things. One of the crazy things, he was a nightclub promoter in New York City doing a lot of like sketchy, sleazy stuff for a while. And somehow, and, and we'll talk about this for sure in the episode, he turned his life around and, and decided to, instead of spending his life getting people wasted, he spent his life getting people clean water. Like it's, he just flipped what he was doing on his head and it's amazing. I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. So let's just do it. This is Scott Harrison and I in his office at Charity Water in New York City. I just want to jump straight into your story. Okay. I've loved getting to know the Charity Water story through the years and your personal story, but I want to go back a little bit further than than the story that I've mostly heard, and I want to hear a little bit about um, your childhood. What was uh, your life like growing up? What was your family like? Sure. Uh, my story really starts when I was four. Uh, I was So I was born into a very middle-class family. My dad was a businessman. Uh, he'd been an electrical engineer. My mom was a writer, part-time. And we moved to get from Philadelphia, where I was born, to southern New Jersey to get closer to his job because his commute was too long. And when I was four, the house that we moved into, unbeknown to all of us, had a carbon monoxide gas leak. So we move into this house. Uh, I'm only spending nights in the house. My dad's only spending nights in the house. And mom is basically spending all day in the house fixing it up. And we all start to die. But mom really starts to die. So the carbon monoxide starts affecting us all. We all have these health problems. And then on New Year's Day, uh, my mother walks across my parents' bedroom and she collapses on the floor. So long series of tests at the hospital to figure out what was wrong with her. Finally, they find these massive amounts of carbon monoxide, carboxyhemoglobin, in her bloodstream. And, 
you know, my dad rips out the furnace. He actually finds the defect in the furnace. Wow. Uh, the gas company had just installed a faulty furnace. Uh, but the damage had already been done. So uh, my dad and I both kind of quickly recovered uh, and, and were healthy, but my mom never recovered. So she didn't die, but her immune system was irreparably destroyed in its ability just to function normally, to fight off anything chemical or toxic. So as a four-year-old, I remember at this point, everything makes mom sick. Perfume makes her sick. Car fumes makes her sick. Soap makes her sick. Uh, the ink from books would make her sick. So she would just try to create this environment where she would not be exposed to anything that made her sick. So, for example, she wanted to continue to read, uh, and my dad and I would go and bake her books in the oven to try to get the smell, uh, that new book smell of the printout. So I remember taking these charred, slightly charred brown books up to her bedroom. Her bedroom had actually... um, turned into a tile bathroom uh, where the, the door was covered in sheets of aluminum foil and she slept on an army cot that was washed 25 times in baking soda. And, you know, I would knock on her door. I would hear kind of the, uh, the rattling, I guess, of the tin foil. She would open the door with a mask on, a charcoal mask on, with gloves on. And then she would take the book because uh, if she touched the print and it got in her bloodstream, that would make her sick. She would put the book into a cellophane bag and then she'd be able to read with her mask on. Wow. How many years did this go on? It's still going on. Wow. So this is what childhood was like. Now, a lot of people thought this was uh, in mom's head and there were times when I thought it was in my mom's head. And I, uh, I remember this one time as a teenager, early teenager, where she was allergic to electromagnetic radiation, meaning TV and radio. And I thought she was just trying to keep me from having fun. (laughs) I mean, how can you be allergic to the radio? So one night after she went to bed, I put a radio outside her bathroom door, but I turned the volume down so she wouldn't know it. And, you know, the next morning she woke up incredibly sick, scared. Um, I felt awful, of course. (laughs) But it was was a moment for me where I realized this isn't mom's head. You know, this this is real. So uh, my father, through all this, was just this amazing guy. He didn't run off with his secretary. You know, they didn't sleep in the same bed for a decade as she was in this kind of containment room, flying around, you know, seeing doctors. Uh, Nobody had an answer for this except to avoid things that expose you, which Mm. was the world. Yeah. So I had a lot of respect for my dad. Uh, I was an only child. Family planning stopped after this accident, and I grew up you know, in a, in a household of Christian faith, kind of non-denominational Christian faith. I was very active in the youth group. I was playing in the church band every Sunday. And, you know, watching these kind of heroic parents live out their faith through this incredible trial and adversity. So I was a really good kid uh, playing by the rules until 18. You know, I wasn't having sex. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't smoking. Uh, I wasn't cursing. I was taking care of mom. Uh, I was the, the you know, dutiful caregiver in some ways. And my parents tried to give me as normal a life as possible and take me to soccer games and um, allow me to you know, engage in as many extracurricular activities as possible. Um, but then at 18, I just had a meltdown and you know, woke up um, and just said, you know, my, my life to this point has been looking out after others. Now it's my turn. And I joined a band, 
and our band was driving about an hour and a half into New York City, and we began to get booked at these uh, pretty famous clubs, CBGBs and the Wetlands, and uh, we got discovered one night by you know, a head of A&R and the band, the Scorpions. And we were invited for record label talks and all this was very wow. exciting. I, I did not know. I don't know any of this. This yeah. is fascinating. And my hair was also down. It was blonde at the time and it was down <laughs> to my shoulders. Both of those were very bad ideas. Oh. Uh, and I was playing keyboards in the band and I was kind of the band's manager. So I was booking us and uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, the band uh, broke up six months later. So it was a short lived adventure uh we just hated each other we didn't know how to get along and there were drugs in the band and i'm still pretty clean at this point um although i'd you know i'd, I'd experiment with a few things so the band breaks up and i'm now 19 uh, i've moved to the city because i was going to you know take our band to rich and famous to status the next level to the next level exactly <laughs> Um, and I, I had to figure out what to do next. And I, I realized that the people who were booking our band out, the people who were controlling the nightclubs in the city were the ones that were making the money. And they would throw us a fraction of what we deserved. We would bring all the people. Uh, they would collect the money, and they might throw us a couple hundred dollars and say, ah, split it six or seven ways. You know, sometimes not even enough to pay for gas. So I became very interested in that side of the business. And uh, the life of a nightclub promoter seemed pretty glamorous. You party for a living. <laughs> you drink for a living. You, you drink for free. Your friends drink for free. Uh, you control who comes past the velvet rope and who gets to sit where. So uh, at 19, uh, I, I started working at a, at a nightclub called Nell's, which was a, a very famous club on 14th Street that had been open for a couple decades. And it's where Brady Ellis wrote American Psycho and... Um, you know, the Rolling Stones were there. It was, it was an amazing kind of uh, institution in nightlife. Um, I began producing an R&B night there. Hmm. So, you know, it was kind of a, a segue from the music and the, the band. And I teamed up with, with another guy who had really great connections in the R&B world. And the next thing you know, you know, we have Stevie Wonder and Prince and Brian McKnight and Shaka Khan <laughs> coming and performing at our R&B nights. So, and are you, you're the one booking them? You're the one making this happen? We're both the promoters. Wow. So the two of us were out there, you know, hiring the band and hiring the hosts and making the, uh, the invites. I and mean, this is kind of before email lists. So this was, we were mailing physical invitations to come to, it was called Voices. Uh, which was an open mic night. And I remember Prince used to come in and sit at the back and he would unscrew the lights for the fixtures over his head so he would just sit there in <laughs> darkness. Um, and it was amazing. And I, I got to play on stage for, uh, for Bonnie Raitt once. I got to play on stage for Stevie Wonder. And wow. it was really, it was kind of a fun combination of you know, music, which I loved, and nightlife. And what, what did it feel like at the time? You had grown up kind of not doing a lot of that stuff and now you're... It was a total shift. Well, it was, again, it, it wasn't all in, but I was definitely drinking at this point. And I was also interested in acting. So I had produced a, a, a play off-Broadway, a David Mamet play uh, that I was acting and you know, co-directing. And I had to smoke. My character smoked. <laughs> so I picked up smoking at 19 as well. If you're going to pick up smoking, might as well start like that, though. But that was it, right? Method <laughs> acting and, you know, I, my, I need to have integrity with my character. And he was a chain smoker. So, you know, the next thing I know, by 20, I'm smoking two packs of reds a day, three if I'm out partying. 
uh, it was the same with drinking. You know, the, the vices came very easily. And then came girls, and then came uh, drugs, uh, and then came gambling, and then came pornography. So at the end, you know, it was pretty much every vice short of heroin <laughs> that I had picked up um, and run with for a decade. So Nell's led to, you know, the open mic led to the fashion scene and a big club called Lotus opened up on 14th Street. And, you know, this was, uh, the, the expression of the time was models and bottles. If you could get beautiful models and actresses and celebrities inside clubs, people would spend extraordinary amounts on alcohol to be a part of the scene. Mm. So you could sell a $50 bottle of champagne for $800. You could sell a $20 bottle of absolute vodka for $500. And you could make people buy five just to sit down at a table. So I became uh, a a promoter in the kind of fashion scene and working for fashion magazines. And um, it was about a decade all in. So the end of 18, early 19 to 28. And, you know, I, I guess I kind of lost my soul, you know, over this decade. It was a... Um, a slow decline, um, a, a departure from all of the spirituality and the morality, uh, the values that I'd been brought up with. And I just became more and more unhappy, um, even though my life looked amazing on the outside. So I'm driving a BMW at this point. I've got a Rolex watch. Uh, you know, I've been on a lot of private planes. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was on the cover of Elle magazine. I mean, this is... You know, everything I thought I wanted, you know, I was getting a piece of. But at 28, uh, a decade in, I'm in South America. I was in Punta del Esta with the girlfriend, with this party set. And, you know, the founders of Cirque du Soleil have houses nearby. And we've rented this massive compound. And there are waiters waiting on us. And there are horses and, you know, amazing sound system. And there's magnums of Dom Perignon. And I remember spending $1,000 uh, with my friends at the fireworks store just for our New Year's Eve party. Wow. And I realized over this vacation that there would never be enough. You know, there was always going to be someone richer. Someone would always have a more beautiful girlfriend, a nicer house, a nicer car, a nicer watch. Uh, all the things that I would, were chasing, um, even if I got them, there would never be enough of them. And, you know, I, I hate churchy words, but there was a, you know, the church word that I grew up with, like conviction or, you know. <laughs> and I, I just, um, it's kind of like the veil was lifted on this trip. And I became, I, I realized that if I continued down this path, I would probably die of some drug overdose at some point. And, you know, I might die young. And, uh, or my liver would die <laughs> young. And my legacy, if I continued on this path, was just, you know, a guy who got people wasted. You know, I might get a million people wasted over my lifetime, but what was my life for? You know, what was I contributing? And it was all just the pure pursuit of selfishness. I didn't care about anybody else. I didn't care about charity. I didn't care about others. It was, what can you do for me? How can I climb over the next person to get ahead? So I... um. You know, I have this moment where I start reading the Bible again, and I start reading theology, and uh, my, my parents, of course, you know, have been horrified over this decade, right? Their only child has gone rogue, has gone, you know, I made the prodigal son look good. <laughs> uh, so my mom's been, you know, wearing the uh, holes in carpet with her knees, and, 
just praying, you know, that somehow <laughs> the foundation, the stuff that they had done growing up would, you know, would, would come up and I would wake up. And that's really, that's what happened. I mean, I kind of lived out that cliche parable. Um, and I, I came back to a very lost faith and a very lost morality. I think I was interested in exploring it differently as a 28-year-old adult. Mm. Um, maybe not what was handed down to me. Or and you'd kind of hit a wall. Do you feel like everybody in that world you live in either hits a wall or dies at some point? Or, or well, it wasn't as like? much a wall. It was more of a, you know, it, it was almost a, you know, a stop and take, you know, take stock of life. Mm. Because the party was great. You know, I didn't run out of money on that trip. I didn't, yeah, everything looked fine. It was an amazing trip. We partied for two weeks. And I think it was just, it was one of those cathartic moments where, you know, maybe you stop and say, how does this play out? Mm. Um, how do I really feel? You know, in the, in the quiet at night, you know, I've been laughing for five hours. And if you looked at me or saw pictures, I'm just laughing and laughing. But then when no one else is around, you know, what is the truth of that moment? And the truth of that moment was I'd become the worst person I knew. I was selfish. I was sycophantic. I was living this depraved, decadent lifestyle that um, was leading me, you know, to a hell or a proverbial hell. So what did you do next? Did you, I mean, so you, you kind of come to this realization that if you keep on going down this path, things are not going to go well but you probably still have things lined up next that you do after this sure. trip. Where, how does the transition begin? So I come back to New York and, you know, it's winter, so this is mid-January. And, you know, the, the glamour, the sheen had worn off of nightlife at this point. And I just start feeling guilty about what I do for a living. So I start trying to find my way back to church, which was very difficult <laughs> at the time because the churches that I was going to met in fluorescent lit basements of, you know, middle schools. And it was just a far cry from our $50,000 sound system experience <laughs> with smoke in the clubs. Um, you know, and I tried to just find my way back to teaching and to prayer and to some of the disciplines. But, but there's this push-pull because I am getting people drunk every night. That's how I pay my rent. Um, and we, we lived recklessly. You know, we weren't savers in nightlife. Whatever we made, we spend that and then maybe a little more on a credit card um, to, to keep up with the lifestyle. So I really needed to work. You know, I couldn't just take a six-month sabbatical at this point and go think about my life. I needed to continue throwing these parties. So this, this goes on for um, a couple months. And, you know, in the summer of that year, um, I, I got an opportunity, something happened in nightlife and, um, there was a fight in nightlife and, uh, just really caused me, um, to get out of town for a couple of weeks. And I remember, um, there was just a bad incident. I'll leave it at that at a club. And I remember renting a, uh, Ford Mustang, a cobalt blue Ford Mustang, grabbing a Bible, grabbing a bottle of Dewar's. And just saying, I'm just going to drive north for a couple weeks. It's a weeks. good dichotomy right there. Mm -hmm. And I called my you know, nightclub partner and said, you know, you're going to take care of things for a couple weeks. So I start heading north and I drive through Vermont and through Maine and I wind up on this lake. Uh, and I'm, I am praying and I'm kind of, you know, reflecting what's next. And I get this idea that what if I sold everything I owned and what if I went to go serve the poor for one year 
Um, and wouldn't it be cool if I could find my way to the poorest country of the world mm. and, and really immerse myself in the opposite of my hedonistic life. Are you trying to make up for all the terrible things you've done or are you just saying, I need a shift? Like what exactly was the reasoning on why you want to go to the poorest country in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. It sounds like penance. You know, it sounds like a tithe, like one year for the 10 that I've <laughs> you know, selfishly wasted. Um, I think I just wanted to explore the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, what would, what would the 180 degree... Yeah, you had one extreme, like. you wanted the mm-hmm. other extreme. And then, who knows, maybe you could find yourself in the middle down the road. Sure. So that was it. The idea was, you know, a year and see where that led and see where that took me. So I'll never forget this. From this dial-up internet cafe, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm logging on and I'm applying to the famous humanitarian organizations of the world for volunteer positions. So the World Visions, the UNICEFs, the Peace Corps, Save the Children, Oxfam. Uh and I never go back to New York at this point. So I just continue to travel and my, my club partner continues to kind of send money from the clubs. And over the next month or so, I'm denied by all of these organizations <laughs> who basically say, we've got no use for a nightclub promoter. Yeah, no, thank you. What, uh, you know, we're serious people. <laughs> we're serving, you know, serious humanitarian missions. And, you know, sorry, you've spent the last 10 years of your life doing what? Getting people drunk? In clubs? Like, we don't understand this. Um, now, I had gone uh, part-time to NYU uh, and gotten an, an, a degree in journalism and communications. Mm. You know, my dad had saved up. I was an only child, and I felt like I should get a diploma. So, you know, I dust this diploma off that I've never used and said, I have a communications degree. I have a journalism degree. I could actually be useful. Well, they all still say, no, thanks. Finally, one organization says... Uh, you know, and, and I later found out the story. They were about to start their mission to West Africa, to Liberia, and they they needed a photographer. They needed a photojournalist. And, you know, this is an easy spot for them to always fill. But for some reason, they were about to begin the mission and they didn't have it. So they'd initially rejected my application. They had to go through the pile of rejected applications. <laughs> so I get a call saying... You know, something to the effect of, you look pretty scary on paper, <laughs> but we'll meet you. So I had to go to Bremerhaven, Germany, which is where this huge hospital ship was being, um, kind of dry docked and it was on its way to Africa. And I, I met the team there and said, look, I really have a passion to serve. I want to turn my life around. Um, and I really have a lot to offer. I have 15,000 emails on my club list, you know, I've got some pretty influential people that I will be able to tell the story of whatever your humanitarian mission mm. is doing. And I'm not going to throw any parties on your humanitarian mission. Um, I'm not going to drink. You know, I really am going to quit and, uh, and change my ways. So it's the original influencer marketing, essentially. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they take me and it happens very quickly. A couple of weeks later, I'm in Africa. Uh, first in Benin, West Africa, then to Liberia, West Africa, which actually at that time was the poorest country in the world. And it still is one of the poorest countries in the world. C-A-R, yeah, it's still bottom three, uh, bottom three or five. C-A-R is currently Central African Republic. But at the time, Charles Taylor's 14-year civil war had just finished. Oh, wow. And the country had no electricity, no running water, no sewage system, no mail system. So it was just completely busted. There was one doctor for every 50,000 Liberian citizens. Here, I think we have a doctor for every 200 of us. So it was a, a broken country. 
and my job was going to be to uh, float in on this huge 500-foot hospital ship with 350 medical crew uh, and supporting crew and help as many people get high-quality access to medical care as possible. And I was going to document all that. And you're committed for a year? year? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, oh, by the way, I had to pay them $500 a month for the pleasure. <laughs> so so the, here was the perfect exact opposite. If I was looking for 180, not only did I find my way on a mission to the poorest country in the world, but I had to pay to volunteer. That's amazing. That's so good. And I had to sell things to raise the money. And so you show up, you're paying $500 a month. So do you take the boat from Germany to... I met, the, I met it in uh, Tenerife in the okay. Canary Islands and okay, so, sailed for five days. So you get off the boat after five days. What's the first thing you see? Well, it smelled amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it smelled like Africa. Um, burning trash and just it, it was just an assault on the senses. Uh, bombed out buildings, uh, potholes in roads. I mean, a war zone. You know, maybe what, you know, Sarajevo might have looked like as we, you know, watch those... Uh, films about war journalism. I mean, this was just a place that had been completely torn apart. I mean, gun gun holes through everything. You know, you'd pass a school and there'd be a thousand bullets riddling the school, you know, ch- chinks in the brick. You know, the third day I was there on the mission uh, would be the day where we would see the patients. So the way it worked is the ship would come in, uh, dock at port, but before the ship actually made it into the country's port, an advance team would promote the ship. Um, not so dissimilar to promoting a nightclub because <laughs> they would hand out flyers. So they would be handing out flyers saying, hey, we, we specialize in these conditions in cleft lips and huge tumors, in flesh-eating disease, in uh, burn contractures. If you've got one of these conditions, if you know someone with one of these conditions, turn up on this day and our doctors will see you and maybe be able to help you. So the government had given us a football stadium, a kind of decrepit football stadium, soccer stadium, to see the patients. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. Over the course of how many weeks? Uh, The first mission was four months. Okay, four months, 1,500 slots. So it's five in the morning, third day there. And I grab my camera, so it's still pitch black, jump into a Land Rover with a bunch of scrubbed up doctors and nurses, you know, in in the green and blue suits. And we turn the corner... Uh, and the stadium appears in view, and it looks like thousands of people. Turns out later there are over 5,000 people came. Wow. So this is, you know, huge, harsh reality, number one. You know, thousands of people that came with hope to see our doctors are going to be turned away simply because we don't have enough slots. Later learning, some of them walked for more than a month. So wow. the word had spread outside of the country into the neighboring countries. And women would grab their children and walk for four, five, six weeks to this stadium. What does that do to your head when you see that? I started crying. I mean, I cried a lot for this, <laughs> this whole year. I turned into a, a big baby a lot. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I'd never seen suffering like that uh, of any sort of magnitude. Leprosy, uh, people, you know, where rebels had poured oil over children mm. and um, you know, you, we saw a lot of people with, with hacked off arms or legs or, or just maimed through this terrible war. Uh, so it was really hard. And you're, you know, it's a sea of suffering. I mean, just all of these people um, crushed together in line, you know, with hope. So 
I really, you know, I, I focused on what we were there to do. Mm. And I tried to focus on the 1,500 people. My job, uh, it was a two-day screening, so it was 48 hours before we filled up those 1,500 slots. My job was to document all of the patients that had been scheduled. So, you know, I'm handing people a slate with a, with a whiteboard. I'm writing their names on it, their patient number, and then I'm photographing them with their deformity up close. Mm. I would also get to photograph them afterwards, um, really showing the impact that, that we were able to make medically in these lives. Were you documenting them as marketing collateral or were you documenting them as just like medical before and after? Both. Okay. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories uh, would then later, you know, turn into kind of success stories that Mercy Ships would be able to go back to its donors and say, look, this is what your money is doing. Were you sending some of these emails (laughs) or sending some of these as emails to all your club friends? Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) I, you know, so that was the work I was doing for them. But then I took it on myself, um, having been a promoter for 10 years outside of you know, me just turning, uploading these to the medical library mm-hmm. and to the ship's intranet, the photo library, um, I start writing these stories, these, these really personal stories of what I was experiencing. And I'm shooting video and I'm shooting photos back to the 15,000 people on my club list. And you know, some people freaked out. I mean, just a couple <laughs> As months. As they should. A couple months earlier, they got invited to a fashion party with open bar. And here's a picture of leprosy. <laughs> Yeah. Or a seven pound, you know, flesh eating tumor, you know, taking over someone's mouth and nose and, and their left eye. Um, so, yes, a, a bunch of people unsubscribed <laughs> quickly. Um, but others, you know, would write me back saying, oh, my gosh. I mean, I had no idea that that people were living in these conditions, that this kind of suffering existed. I had no idea that doctors were volunteering their time and were operating for free. You know, because these stories ended well. Um, mm. I mean, we were we, we would we would be able to remove cataracts from a 25 year old woman in 20 minutes, and that and changes her life forever. Well, she could see sometimes for the first time in her life. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it was we would remove tumors. People would be able to speak. So it was it was really amazing, um, and and the the images, you know, were so aggressive and so arresting that. Um, they really move people to action. So people started sending money. Wow. And others began to inquire, well, how do I volunteer? How do I come on the ship? And, and did you get the impression that for a lot of these people, this is their first time stepping into the world of giving? Because I would imagine, based on your lifestyle before and the fact that yeah, you... Yeah, I wasn't given. <laughs> uh, it, it was, it was. And, 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 and you know, later when Charity Water came into being, we, we heard that a lot. Hey, this is the first gift I've given wow. charitably. Um, I remember getting an email once from a woman at Chanel, and she said, you know, here I am sitting at my desk, tears streaming down my face. People are asking me why I'm crying, and, and I just, you know, I had no idea that a woman my age, living a couple thousand miles away, you know, would be experiencing this suffering, would have no doctor to go to. Um, so I realized the power of promoting for good. And it's coming through your personal story, which also has a certain amount of power as well. The fact that you're experiencing this, it makes it feel real to these people. Yeah, and these are people that had done drugs with me in some, <laughs> you know, in some cases. So uh, I think it was just so bizarre for them. You know, and, and uh, so I was writing a lot. I took 50,000 photos that first year. Mm. I probably sent 40, 50 emails and stories home. You know, so I was really just... 
um, I would scrub up in the morning sometimes and document a surgery. And before I walked in the surgery, I would press send to 15,000 people and say, I'll let you know how it turns out. Wow. And then nine hours later, send them the completion photos uh, and a story. So I was really trying to build um, the, the suspense sometimes and really just inspire people with the, as, as I was inspired by the work. You know, the, the, a short story, the chief medical officer on the ship had signed up for a year uh, sorry, not not for a year like me. He'd done three months. So he was going to take a, a time off from his California plastic surgery practice hmm. to do three months. He was there 25 years. What? So I'm watching this man, Dr. Gary Parker, you know, perform these surgeries. Here's a guy who's committed a quarter of a century of his life wow. to serving the poor. Never went back to his plastic surgery. Gave up. I'm sure a lot of money. A lot of money. Millions and millions and millions of dollars and was living in a tiny cabin. And so is that, what, during this whole time, what are you imagining you're going to do at the end of your year? Are you like, oh man, I might go back to the same world, but maybe just like do it better. I'll, I'll go to something similar. Like I'll do event planning, but not for clubs. What is your mind processing through what you're going to do at the end of the year? Well, I was never going to go back. It's impossible to go back when you, when you see that mm. uh, so immersively, when you, you smell it, when you see it, when you meet the people that we met. Um, I could nev- never go back to selling you know, $500 bottles of champagne after that. Uh, I wasn't sure what was next, so I signed up for a second year <laughs> <laughs> is the real answer. And I just said, I'll do another tour. On that second tour, um, I thought I wanted so I went back to Liberia. And I thought that I wanted to help promote Mercy Ship's work far and wide mm. and really take their story all over the world and do these huge exhibitions and installations and show people these patients before and after, uh, profile the work of these heroic doctors and surgeons. At the end of that tour, they basically said, um, we're just not really interested in that. Mm. And, and it was fine. So that door shut. Uh, and I said, well... You know, I'm 30 years old now. I'm broke because I've given all my money to Mercy Ships and the people that I've met along the way. Uh, I get to start a new chapter of my life. What should I do? And I'd seen a lot um, in the, the time I spent in West Africa. And I, I went up buying an old motorcycle and getting to spend a lot of time just driving through the country on my own and meeting people and uh, documenting you know, some of the conditions. And of all of the things that I'd seen... I remember being so struck by the fact that so many people didn't have clean water. Mm. Uh, In fact, half of the people in Liberia at the time were drinking dirty water from their swamps and their ponds and their rivers. So I was making this connection between all of the sick people, thousands of sick people, and the most basic health need not being met for half of the country. So I'm telling the doctors this. I'm like, guys, I just drove six hours up country and there's thousands of people drinking from nasty, disgusting, algae-filled, bug-filled swamps. No wonder everybody's sick. No wonder you're doing this surgery. And surgeon after surgeon, you know, no matter which country they came from, would kind of encourage me and say, yeah, you know, waterborne disease is a really big thing. Mm. And, you know, if you're passionate about that, you should go and work on that. And it was a hunch for you. It was medical science for them. What did you do next? So I came back uh, and started researching water and learned that there were a billion people in the world that didn't have this wow. basic need met. And 
you know, perhaps a little bit of the extreme irony for me. I used to sell water for 15 or 20 bucks in nightclubs. And people would come in and buy the bottles, put them on their tables for show, and not even open them. So, you know, I had never gone without water. You know, I drank bottled water. I drank high-end bottled water. Uh, and I just became really interested in that issue. As I looked at the landscape of kind of water charities, the biggest water charity in America was a $13 million a year group out of Texas. Which is not that much money. Nothing, nothing, nothing. No, this is a you know, uh, tens of billion dollar problem. So I thought, well, maybe I could promote clean water for every single human being in the same way that I'd promoted medical, you know, care for mm. every human being. And maybe I could use my camera or a video camera, uh, or, or the pen, um, you know, my email list to, to get people really excited about this. So that was the issue. So I had an issue, but as I started talking to my friends, uh, and I was running around at this time with a laptop to in, in clubs. I mean, I would th- those are the people that I knew. So I remember getting kicked out of DJ booths at two in the morning because <laughs> I'm trying to show people pictures of dirty water and people with tumors. And the DJ's like, "Bro, you are killing my buzz. Like, please, you know, go away." <laughs> but I was so passionate about what I'd seen, and there was responsibility to take the images and the stories to everybody that I met um, in service of of the people you know, whom I'd met. So as I'm talking to my friends, I realized there's this huge growing disenchantment with charity. And my friends just weren't excited about giving. You know, this is a very different landscape 10 years ago than today. Uh, nobody wanted to give to any of these huge charities. People didn't know what the March of Dimes did. Or, mm-hmm. you know, my friends were never going to give to the United Way. No. Uh, and there was nothing, they actually had a really negative uh, opinion of charities. And um, as I dug into the data later, I learned that 70% of Americans think charities waste money. Mm. 70% of, char- of Americans. 40% of Americans just don't trust charities. And there's, there's probably good reason for that in a number of cases. Well, there is. And of course, you know, what makes the news is the bad news. Exactly. Right? The Anderson Cooper used to do those specials where he would chase the evil charity CEOs you know, and he would turn up at their McMansion and he's standing on their stoop and evil charity CEO slams the door in Anderson's face <laughs> and the country throws up their hands and said, that's why I don't give. Mm-hmm. These people are corrupt. You're going to take my money and they're going to go buy Mercedes or they're going to go and, you know, put it all into overhead. So I realized that this was, if we were going to make a real dent in the water crisis, if we we're going to solve a problem this huge or make significant strides towards solving it, we would need to restore people's faith in charity. We would need to get these disenchanted people who should be giving, who were missing out by not giving and being generous. Um, Give them another reason to trust. Give them a new business model. So that's really, um, the vision was to reinvent charity. And I remember when I first found out about Charity Water, I... I was like, this is so different than anything I'd ever seen before. It felt slick. It felt like it was a a brand. It felt like you know, it felt like it was Nike or you know, some or Apple. You know, it mm-hmm. was it had a plan, it had a mission, but also didn't feel it didn't feel sleazy, it didn't feel weird, it didn't feel like they were gonna waste my money. Yeah. And from day one we said, Well, the biggest objection the public has is how much of their money from each donation will go why don't we take that objection completely off the table so they can never use that excuse with us? And I didn't know how this would work, but I made a promise that 100% of every dollar we would ever raise 
from the public would go directly to building clean water projects. And somehow, we would find a way to raise all the ugly money, the overhead, the staff, the mm. salaries, the flights, the insurance, the copy machine. We would raise that separately. No idea how we would do it. <laughs> literally, I literally opened up two bank accounts with two different numbers um, and then took it a step farther and said, well, we're going to have credit card fees when the public gives by credit card. Let's pay them back too. So, so we can really mean 100%. Mm. So even if someone gives $100 on their visa and we get $98, we're going to figure out how to go find the missing $2 the visa took so we can send their intended $100 to build water projects. And nobody had done this before. Uh, not like that, no. Never in a grassroots way that, that we'd heard of. You know, there were some very, very wealthy people who had endowed their charities. Um, but no, I mean, people were telling us we were crazy and that we would go bankrupt and we would blow the thing up. But I just had this pure vision yeah. um, that, you know, it needed to be clear for people. Um, the second thing was because money wouldn't be fungible, because we wouldn't be moving it around, we could do really cool things proving the impact of those dollars. And we could use technology in really interesting ways to be accountable to our donors. So a lot of it was fortunate timing. And Charity Water and Google Earth started the same year. Mm. So I met the Google Earth founder. And after a conversation, realized that they had built this free place where we could put every water point we would ever mm. fund up for the public to see. We could be transparent from day one. So we said we're never going to fund, in addition to the 100%, we're never going to fund a project unless we prove the photo and a GPS coordinate um, and we put all that online for people to see. Uh, and you know, always, we're always going to look for new ways to prove impact, to be hyper-transparent and to connect our supporters with what their money is doing. And then the third thing I'm glad you called out was I really did want to build a beautiful brand. And the first person I hired was to help me work on the water side uh, and the second person was a creative director mm. to help build a beautiful brand. And charities had anemic websites at the time and blinking animated GIFs and, you know, <laughs> or they, they put up 100-page PDF documents that they expected people to read. And, of course, nobody's reading 100-page PDF documents. So uh, I'd come across a quote in the New York Times uh, by Nick Kristoff who said, you know, toothpaste is peddled with far more sophistication than all of the world's life-saving causes. I thought, you know, he's right. Like Crest and Colgate, outmarket charities. Mm. You know, Doritos. I mean, stuff that's not even good for us is, is, you know, taking marketing seriously and the most important life-saving causes in the world, whether it's water education or health, you know, often have these anemic, opaque brands. So those are kind of the three pillars. Give away 100%, prove to the public what their money had done, build a beautiful, hopeful, inspirational brand, not one based on shame and guilt. Well, and that's one of the things that I've especially loved about you guys. And um, I've got a number of friends who have photographed for you guys, Esther Havens, mm -hmm. Jeremy Snell. Mm -hmm. um, and the photos are never, and I'm looking around, you know that you've got photos all around. And it's never like those commercials you see on TV with the sad music and the mm -hmm. flies on these kids' faces. Slow motion, the 800 number oh, that comes in the bottom. The laying on the ground. It's hope-filled. There's, there's light shining. There's smiles. There's kids holding clean water for the first time. There's water from wells flying into the air. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think about what can be instead of uh, guilting you into giving. Mm -hmm. What are people's responses in the first year of you actually starting this nonprofit organization with all these pillars that you're really flipping charity on its head. Sure. Well, it started in a club. 
So, you know, I went back. Uh, day one of Charity Water was my 31st birthday in a nightclub. I got 700 people to come to the club. And this time, just charged them 20 bucks at the door. But instead of putting the 15000 in cash in my pocket, 100% was going to go to water projects. And mm. we'd build as many as possible. Uh, so they, that turned out to be in northern Uganda um, in, a, in a refugee camp. We were able to repair a few broken wells and bring six back online for a huge, huge uh, refugee population in that camp called Bobi at the time. Uh, and it just started working. I mean, I remember someone came to that party and said, they gave 500 bucks and said, this is the first gift I've ever given in my lifetime. First charitable gift. But I feel like I can trust this. Wow. And of course, the issue, while water doesn't affect 99.9% of the people listening to this, it's something everybody can agree on. Our humans need clean water. So while we are taking long showers and you know we may never have been thirsty and certainly aren't drinking from swamps in our backyards, everybody can agree on this basic need. So once we could tell the story, people said, oh my gosh, I'm in. I think the, the, one of the most compelling points about the business model, though, was... Um, was working through local partners. And I, I really believed early on for our work to be sustainable, for the money we raised to have a true impact, it couldn't be people that look like me. You know, it wasn't going to be Westerners flying around Africa or Southeast Asia or India drilling wells. Uh, we would be best served, you know, building this movement of compassionate people who cared about the issue. But then the work had to be done by locals. Mm. So it would be our job to go and find those local well drillers, um, the local technicians, and give them the money at first. And if we had more money, grow their capacity. So they would hire the next 100 local Ethiopians you know, to go and lead yeah. that work forward. It, it is really multifaceted because it's having an impact on local economies. There's building a trust with a relationship. People feel more invested in these wells because they were built by people who were in their community or were from their country. Totally. And new jobs. Yeah. And job creation, you know, in the service of, of a basic service for their their own um, communities and own people. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of the virtuous cycle. Our job would be build awareness, promote water, the water crisis, or, or promote a world where every single human being is drinking clean water, raise money from a generous public as efficiently as possible, and then make sure the work was done by the locals. Mm. And water, you're telling the story of why water is impactful. Um, and obviously, you know, we're both sipping water right now. We're like, oh, cool. We have to drink. Otherwise, we feel bad. Um, you know, we, mm -hmm. we need this. Otherwise, we die. But there's a whole lot more ramifications other than just like, we need water. We need food. We need, you know, there's this idea of time. There's this idea of, we already mm -hmm. touched on it, diseases. Um, what are some of the stories that have really come to life over the last 10 years? You guys have been around for 10 years. Sure. What are some of the stories of people getting to have a totally different life because they have a well in their community or a filter in their community. Sure. Well, as, as you mentioned, you know, if you don't have water impacts health, um, uh, up to have 50% of disease, 80% of disease in the, uh, developed world, you know, in these countries where we're working, 80% of the people that are sick are sick because of bad water. Mm. So just start there. Um, it impacts education, so kids aren't going to school if they're walking hours for water if they're sick. If the schools don't have water and toilets, uh, it impacts the local economies as you know, so much time is spent walking. That's really the thing. You know, it's, it's less sometimes the quality of the water, which would shock us 
you know, we wouldn't let our dogs drink from a swamp or a, you know, a, a dirty, viscous brown river. Yeah. But the women say, actually, the bigger problem is the time because it takes us eight hours, mm. seven days a week. Uh, the stat in, in Africa alone, 40 billion hours are wasted fetching 40 water. 40 billion hours. So that's more than the entire, that's more than every single human in France working for a year. Wow. You know, so you think of this um, slightly ironic analogy, I guess, but if you think of this kind of unrealized economy of time and time turned into money. So, you know, there are a lot of stories and I think people don't really connect with the stats as much as with stories and I'll, I'll tell, um, you know, a couple, um, you know, I, I, I came across this story in Ethiopia where I've now been 29 times. I'm 29 going, times. I'm going next month for the 30th time since starting Charity Water. And yeah, I know the country pretty well and we've done a lot of work there. And I, I came across this story of a 13-year-old girl who was walking for dirty water every day. And as the story went, one day before she reached home after her long walk, She'd slipped and fallen, and she broke her pot, and she spilled her water. Uh, and as the story goes, she doesn't want to go back for water anymore, and she hangs herself from a tree. And the elders find this 13-year-old girl's body swinging from a tree in this village. And I remember thinking, there is no way that story's true. So I hiked to that village. It took me nine hours uh, after the road ended, and I... I wanted to see if it was true for myself. And I wound up spending uh, about a week in the village and retracing her steps, meeting her mom, meeting her friends, uh, meeting the priest uh, who gave her funeral. It, it was true. And it just had never struck me until, you know, living there that, I don't know, the, the power of water, the power of shame and despair. I mean, it was a real... It was really a downer. I mean, it, mm. was, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life because there's no happy ending. I got to see her grave, this little pile of rocks. And I asked her friend, you know, why do you think she took her life? And her friend, you know, obviously through a translator, says, well, she would have been overcome with shame because her parents needed that water to cook dinner. Mm. And she's broken this clay pot, which would be 3 or $4 to replace. And I just remember coming out... Um, just wanting to fight harder. And I was angry that we could live in a world where a 13-year-old girl is going to hang herself from a tree because she was born in a place where she had to walk eight hours for dirty water. Um, you know, not too long after that, I was in Niger, West Africa, and I meet this woman named Aisa who, you know, told, tells me she's lost eight of her children. She had 10 children in the end, Two of them lived, eight of them died, and they all died at different ages. You know, a couple at birth, one, three, five, eight, two at 11, and she's standing next to the most disgusting water I've ever seen. I mean, this is water you wouldn't want to touch you. And, you know, doesn't, doesn't know, I mean, I, I can't correlate all eight deaths with the water. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at this woman saying, how can you be smiling how can you be welcoming me into your home? You know, I, I can't imagine the trauma of losing a child, losing two children, losing eight children. Um, so the, that story ended well, and she's drinking clean water now, and you know, far too late, but she and her two children now have beautiful clean water um, only moments from her house. So it's, it, it, it is human. Um, you know, there are, there are stories of 
of death, there are stories of hardship, there are stories of long walks, and then there are these incredible stories when people get clean water. And I was uh, recently in some of our wells that were eight years old, and I'm, I'm in this huge village, and clean water is flowing eight years later. And I'm looking at every kid under eight realizing they've never mm. had dirty water. Wow. And their parents in their 30s or 40s, you know, were going from a swamp, which is nearby. So we have these, these beautiful stories of water breaking the cycle of disease, breaking the cycle of wasted time on these walks. Um, there's a story that we've been telling for years at Charity Water um, that Esther Havens actually discovered for us in northern Uganda. And this beautiful woman named Helen Apio, who had gotten clean water, and said for the first time in her life she felt beautiful because she had enough water to wash her face and her clothes. And it's such a simple thing, but that's, I that mean, changes we, everything. We don't think about that. You know, water is, imagine having to make choices every day. Do I cook? Do I clean? Do I garden? Do I wash my shirt today? Do I wash my body? Do I wash my kids' bodies? Do I wash my kids' clothes? Do I let my husband use the water? So that's, that was her life. Mm. She, had, she had about two, two toilet flushes quantity of water that she was walking to get every wow. day. So... You know, it is transformative when we're able to, you know, to provide it. And, you know, Brendan, one of the terrible ironies is that sometimes it's a couple hundred feet beneath these communities. They're so close. I heard a story once where our well drillers went into the village and there was, there was this old woman and she was just weeping off to the side. And they're like, hey, this is a happy day. If you haven't noticed, there's clean water shooting out of the ground next to our drilling rig. You're never going to drink dirty water again. And she says something to the effect of, my whole life I've been walking, and you're telling me it was underneath my feet? Mm. The entire, my entire life? So, you know, it's, uh, it's a really amazing thing to be able to do, um, you know, once, 10 times, 20 times. And we've got now um, over 25,000 projects in 24 countries, and, you know, over 7 million people uh, will drink clean water because of that. Um, the crisis has now come from a billion people to 660 million people. So it's actually mm. progress being made. That's so we're, great. we're optimistic. We're How do you maintain a sense of hope, though, when there are still 660 million people? Because it's you've made a dent, but there's still so much work to be done. Well, let's see. Well, it's 1% of the problem. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we certainly don't have 1%. Um, you know, I think you really focus on the individual story. So I'm, mm. I'm really fortunate that I get to travel to these villages and I get to meet people who are drinking from uh, water projects. Uh, it's funny even sometimes seeing donor names or groups of donors from birthday campaigns. You know, I'll be in the middle of Nepal and I'll see a little plaque on a huge water system and I'll know that donor. And that's not a rich person. That's yeah. just someone who gave up their 19th birthday. So there's the flip side of what Charity Water does. Obviously, you're providing water for people around the world who need it. But it's not a whole bunch of rich people giving money. It's people like me. It's, it's children. It's schools. It's churches. It's just regular people. And I think that when you give, it, it changes the way that you see the problem. I remember the very first time I donated to Charity Water when I was in high school and it transformed the way that I thought about giving. And, and the cool thing about Charity Water, you donate money, and then you see a picture of that well. You get the geotag sent in your email, and, and sometimes you even get updates about, here's what's going on in this community. Yep. It's game-changing. Um, it's a two-faceted impact. It's, it impacts you on 
you know, the state side and it impacts people on uh, the developing nation side. Yeah. I mean, so many organizations look at donors as a means to an end. We really love our supporters. I mean, I think we're on a mission um, to inspire people to uh, encourage them towards compassion and generosity and optimism and hope and uh, and joy, you know, as much that. as we want to turn all of that goodwill and money into a basic need, into clean yeah. water for millions of people around the world. So, you know, it's kind of a virtuous cycle if you can get it right. And you know, we've we've really we've really encouraged small donations. Um, you know, the way that we're able to give away 100% is there are 116 wealthy families. Those 116 wealthy families around the world cover all the overhead. Uh, there are 78 employees here. You know, you're in a big office in New York. Uh, we're taking hundreds and hundreds of flights around the world to these projects. All of that is covered by 116 wealthy families. And these are people that are entrepreneurs, celebrities, like tech startup founders. Sure. When you're talking with these people who are giving a whole lot of their resources to make this happen, um, what's the thing that really sticks out to them? Like, what's the connecting point? Obviously, you have a story that, that may really relate to them, but what's, like, what's the thing that hooks these big names? I think they're looking at it as an investment. You mm. know, they're, they are not cynical. They're all building businesses of their own, and they realize there are costs, and you know, there's salary and healthcare and benefits, and if you want to hire the best people, um, you, know, you need to pay competitively. Um, I think it's, they also realize they're making it possible for millions of people to give in the most pure way. Mm. So the, the 116 families are not jaded. They, are, uh, they believe in what we're doing. You know, we, we treat them like investors. We share information and we share, finan we share financials with everybody. But um, we really say, hey, look, you, know, you can come alongside and pay for the next employee. You can pay for the flights, the stuff that the the, the, the non-trusting public doesn't want to, and we're going to have a much bigger impact together. Mm. So, you know, think of that today. 116 families funding one bank account, all the bad stuff. Over a million donors now giving in a pure way incredible. to provide clean water for 7 million people. Um, and, you know, as you know, we've tried to be creative with that. We, we came up with this birthday idea years ago and said, look, birthdays, we celebrate ourselves. We throw parties. We get gifts. Sometimes we get gifts we don't even need uh, or even want, you know, ties and wallets and handbags and scarves. And, you know, for crying out loud, there's 660 million people without water. So what if we could turn our birthdays into these redemptive, generous giving moments and we could make our birthdays about others and we could involve our friends and our family. And I think the, the idea that we kind of stumbled into was people could ask for their age in dollar donations. Brilliant. So a six-year-old knows people who could give $6. It's lunch money. It's allowance. An 81-year-old probably knows some people who could give $81. And a 22-year-old knows someone who could give you know, $22. It's perfect. And that movement has really started to grow around the world. And you know, the average person that donates their birthday to Charity Water winds up raising about $1,000 That's from amazing. 15 of their friends. That's huge. It's huge. So think about that. If a million people donated their birthday, we could raise a billion dollars. Easy. That's so that's, uh, that's been a really exciting. Um, you know, I think I've done seven birthdays now. My son, when he was born, didn't even know it, but gave up his birth. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen people do it for their weddings. We've seen people do it for anniversaries. 
um, it, it's been really, really cool to kind of see people um, take a very simple idea and, and expand it. It's powerful. And, uh, and you guys just started something called The Spring. You had this amazing launch in 2016. Um, yeah, we worked with uh, Jason, who was on the podcast. I yeah, think, right? Jason's been on the show. Um, he's fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit more about the spring and this kind of new idea on how to continue making an impact. And, you know, you're, you're changing the game. You're, you're mixing things up. You're finding new things that work. Sure. Well, the, the birthday is amazing. But what we found is that people would do one birthday for Charity Water, have a great experience, raise a bunch of money, and then kind of say, well, I did that. Right? I'm not going to go back the next year or the third year and ask my friends and family to donate to the same cause. We saw some people actually take the birthday idea forward and take mm. another cause on the next year, which is great. Right? You, know, you do your 31st birthday for charity water and your 32nd for education and your 33rd for health or a justice issue. Um, but we, as the organization grew, realized that you know, one-time donations – kind of the, hey, we, you know, I feel inspired and I'm going to drop 100 bucks or 20 bucks. We needed to build something a little more sustainable for the future to make a bigger impact. So you know, the, the world uh, of subscription products has grown, right? Everybody has some sort of you know, music account, whether it's Apple to, you know, iTunes or Spotify um, or a Netflix or a Hulu or a magazine. Or all of the above. Or all the above. <laughs> and you know, those subscription programs, we get benefit. We're listening to music. We're consuming content. Uh, maybe magazines are coming to our house. So we thought, you know, what if we could create a subscription program where uh, our supporters would get no value and 100% of the value would be passed on to people without clean water? Beautiful. And then we would try to find new and innovative ways to connect them to what that money did. Um, we kind of anchored it at $30 a person a month, which we can give one person clean water for every $30. Mm. But then we said, we realize a lot of people can't give that. So some people give $5 a month and give two people clean water a year. Um, we had some people say, well, I could do $90 a month and help three people. So it was really just uh, the idea of a community of people who would sign up for more than just, hey, cool, heard about clean water, I'm inspired, here's 20 bucks, um, but would commit to you know, seeing an end to the water crisis. I mean, we're, you know, we're 10 and a half years in and we are continuing to fight every single day, hopefully and optimistically, that we are going to see mm. a day on earth when no one is drinking dirty water, where no 13-year-old girl's hanging to herself from a tree, you know, no woman is losing eight children. We know how to solve it. You know, this is not like some of these diseases where people are looking for cures and test tubes that may or may not be there. We know how to give every human being on earth clean water right now. We don't have the resources yet. We don't have the will yet, but we know how to do it. So the idea of the spring was a giving community where people could sign up, give what they could every single month. We have some people lose their job and go from 100 to 5. We have other people go from 5 to 20. Um, that it would be a kind of fluid, dynamic community, but that people would say, we'll stick with you guys. You continue to do the right thing. You continue to be transparent. If you continue to show us impact, uh, we will continue to selflessly give. Mm. So that was the idea. That's beautiful. We've I got, love that. Our goal was 10,000 members. We're at about 6,100 members. That's great. Um, and when we get to 10,000, we're going to figure out how to get to ten, you know, 100,000 and then hopefully a million and... Um, continue serving people every day. Oh man, how great is Scott? <laughs> I seriously admire this guy so much. He had this one quote during our conversation and it really stuck out to me. I loved it so much. 
so much so that I actually wrote it down. And it was in response to me asking him, I said, how are you able to stay so optimistic about ending the water crisis when there's still so much to be done? And he said, we focus on the individual stories. And I think that this is a really profound idea. And I've been thinking about it a lot over the past few days. Because in the world that we live in today, numbers and statistics, while they're important, they can make us feel really bogged down, like, like things are too big to accomplish. It makes us feel like we can't help people or like we aren't going to be able to change the world because there's just so much to be done. But when you focus on helping just one person or one family, it feels so much more real and manageable. And then you can multiply that number out by the big number. You know, whatever it is, 60 million, you can say, oh, like here's this one story. Let me multiply that by 60 million. And it allows you to be more empathetic, compassionate. It's a real powerful way to look at the world. And so I love that idea. And again, I am so honored to have Scott on the podcast to start the second year of Sounds Good. If you want to follow along with Charity Water like I do, they are at Charity Water everywhere online. And even better, get involved. Become a monthly giving member of the spring. My wife and I are, and we love it. We get these reports in our inbox where it shows where the money that we're giving actually is going. Like we get to see the communities that we're having an impact on. And it is huge. And here's, <laughs> this is so goofy, but this is our secret. This is how we are able to afford doing this. My wife and I love like ending the night with a good TV show. And so we're subscribed on our Apple TV to like Hulu, Netflix, HBO. But the truth is that there is way too much out there for us to be able to watch all of those things every month. And so what we've started doing is we've started playing like roulette with these different services every month. And we'll just kind of pick at the beginning of the month, which one of these are we going to cancel? Like we're going to cancel one or two of these. And I'm sure that the folks at Netflix and Hulu and HBO hate us because we're constantly uh, unsubscribing and resubscribing, but it saves us a ton of money. And every month we're able to give $30 to charity water to provide clean water for people in need. So I don't know, try something creative like that. It's really fun. You can become a member of The Spring at charitywater.org slash The Spring. And as always, you can find the show notes for the podcast and follow along online at soundsgoodpodcast.com. For those of you who are still listening to the podcast, I've got two things real quick. Number one, you are the absolute best. Thank you so much for sticking around. Like, that's amazing. Number two, I want to let you in on a little secret. I am getting ready to launch this brand new project. I'm not allowed to talk about it publicly yet, but I'm very excited, also very nervous about it. Um, and as we move forward with the project in the next week or two, I'm going to need some feedback. I want to show it off. I want some people to see it, and I want to hear back from people about what they think, what I could change, what could be better. Um, and I want to give people an opportunity to be a part of this from the very beginning. So if you're interested in being a part of this, let me know. And the way that I'm having people do that is uh, just go to brandonharvey.com slash secret. And I'll know to get in touch with you about what I'm getting ready to launch. And then you can be a part of it from the beginning. So do that ASAP so that I can send out information really soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited, so nervous, but your support means the world. And on that note, that's a wrap for today's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next Monday with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good? <laughs>